one family at a time was kind of all we could handle. Mm -hmm. And so that way we would have lots of interactions. What are our boundaries? What are our limits? Where, where, what can we handle and what can we not handle? You're listening to The Real Foster Parents of Colorado. I'm Hope, and I started Foster Together Colorado to meet the needs I saw in my first three years as a foster mom. My theory, and it has proven true so far, is that if we make it easy to learn about the human stories of foster care, then good-hearted Coloradans will be ready to help in simple ways. This is the only podcast focused on foster parenting or child welfare in Colorado. Our goal is to make foster care fascinating by stories from neighbors to neighbors and living room conversations. This podcast is the next best thing to meeting a foster parent in real life and asking them all those questions. How do you make it work? Don't you get attached? What's it like when they leave? Today is the first of my two-part conversation with David and Lynn. They were foster parents for the last 15 years, and they'll share with us today how they found their niche of putting families back together through and after foster care. In case you didn't already know, we've started something new at Foster Together where after every podcast episode releases, I post an interesting question based on the topics of our conversation, and I ask you to interact with us on social media about that question. And I want to know from you, if you're a foster parent, how have you evolved or developed or intentionally changed your mindset over the years about what is acceptable for children in your care to go back to when they reunify with their parents? You'll hear David and Lynn's answer on the podcast today, but I I hope you'll also weigh in on our Facebook, our Instagram, and our Twitter. I'll share all of the links to that at the very end of this episode. Lynn and David, thank you so much for joining us. To be here. Nice to be here. <laughs> um, well, so you're both foster parents, well, former foster parents. We'll talk about that soon. Tell us who you are and what you care about, what you do in your day to day right now. Okay, this is Lynn. And my day to day, I am a physical therapist assistant at, for geriatrics in a short term rehab facility. So I do that full time right now. Okay, and this is David, and for my day-to-day, I manage a call center in Mile High United Way called 211, and it's just a place that anyone can call and will answer health and human services-related questions and try to find a resource to match a current life crisis. Mm -hmm. So if somebody, I've referred people to that with my work with CASA before, so if somebody is looking for housing or childcare or something, you kind of have that whole database of everything that's available. Exactly. Rather than them having to run around looking for something. We actually have a couple of ways you can get to it. One, they can go to Mm 211colorado.org and they can look up stuff themselves. Or if they call us between 8 and 5, then we have live agents who will speak with them. we, they can text us at 898-211, and we really do offer a wide gamut of services mm-hmm. um, from helping people with a tax service to identifying uh, a mediator to help with their landlord. Wow. Um, it's a very broad scope of uh, needs. Good. 
Okay, so Lynn, going back to your work with geriatrics and physical therapy, you said, right? Right. Um, was this, so I'm going to lead into your first foster placement in just a second. Were you in the caretaking business before you ever got a call about foster care? No, I wasn't. Okay. My prior career was in software development. Okay, so completely <laughs> different. Yes. So tell me what happened 15 years ago without, you know, giving away the kids' details or anything like that. What launched you into this foster care thing? It wasn't an intentional, we want to be foster parents, was it? No, it wasn't. Okay. We got a call from um, David's niece um, in tears. She was in jail and had her five children taken away. Mm. They needed placement for those three kiddos. Mm -hmm. I had recently taken an early retirement, and I was at home. Uh, we had one kiddo still at home who was 13. No, he was 11. And um, so your biological children. Yes. Oh, I should have asked that. So you have you have kids already. Yes. Um, so they're all out and grown up. Now they are. Yeah. Yes. Right now. Um, but we had one still at home. Okay. So he got to enjoy all the kiddos that yeah. we had. Um, but so he was 11, and I had taken a early retirement and thought, mm -hmm. okay, how hard could this be? Right. And I went from one to four overnight, mm -hmm. and it was. I still say by far the hardest placement we ever had. Wow. And and then you've continued these last 15 years to do it, and you still would say that was the most difficult. Do you think that had to do with it being your family members? I think there were several issues. One was family, made it much more complicated, mm -hmm. um, although I didn't really even know her, the mom or yeah. dad, very well. But two, um, the kiddos came from an environment I wasn't familiar with, an Indian reservation, mm -hmm. and... Um, three, I think just our naivety yeah. of being foster the parents. The first time, that my first time was really difficult. Yes. So we've actually done that training in Ohio beforehand. I thought about that. So you had some matter. previous training then already before you even got this call. What was that? Right. So we had lived in Ohio and our youngest one was six or seven. Uh -huh. And I just had a miscarriage, oh. so you kind of get psyched for having another kid. And then when we lost it, mm. we thought, well, why don't we adopt? So we actually went through the um, training for FOSS to adopt in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, you know, we kind of had that training, which I think really did help. Um, so you had that first placement. It was really difficult. You made it through. Now, did you end up adopting those kids or what happened? So we had um, the three of them for a year. Mm -hmm. They went back with their mom. And then there was another reason for them to be removed. Mm -hmm. And so we took them in again. Okay. And was that, I mean... So it being that really hard year, I would imagine if I put myself in your shoes, you're feeling like, whew, we did it, they're back to mom, we can relax and all of that and just recoup your own family identity. And then was it just like shock and horror when you had to say yes again or did you feel like you had the option? Well, we certainly had the option mm -hmm. and we could talk through the possibilities. And in fact, when it was time to come back, we split the sibling group. Okay. So that my brother, uh, who also lives in, in the Denver metro area. Okay. Uh, he actually um, uh, took um, one of the kiddos. Yeah. Two. Uh, two At of the that kiddos. point, there were four. Okay. Here. Right. So. Mm -hmm. so. So we split the sibling group, and that made it a little bit easier to handle. Um, 
But certainly that's, that's one of the key parts that kicks in in that fostering model. There is frustration. There is anger. There is, I just went through all of this. Why am I doing it again? Yes. You know, uh, when you also add into it the fact that it was family members, which makes it a kinship yeah. uh, placement, uh, those dynamics really make it that much harder. Mm-hmm. But that's also one of the great benefits of the foster care. Mm-hmm. Uh, it forced us to really process and think through what are priorities. We were able to, to you look at You mean your it. priorities for your family or for the kids or for their family? Actually, for both. Yeah. You know, because I found the it, same thing. It really forced us to really think through um, what would we want to see happen if it were our family. Mm-hmm. How do we prioritize so that we're creating an environment that's going to be best for the foster kiddos? Mm-hmm. You know? And then how does it relate to us personally? So... We can figure out as adults how do we how do we interact with others. Yes. So processing through all of that became almost a, a mini therapy session that actually helped us it relate to other people. It brings up a lot of things. It brings up a lot <laughs> of things. Uh, in fact, in that very first year, um, with the very first placement, we would take turns in the evening debriefing. Um, Talking through, mm-hmm. hey, what did this raise? What did this bring up for you? And then being able to actually challenge one another to say, you need to step back for a minute, let this sink in, and I will approach and be a primary interface, and vice versa. You have to buffer it for each other. You mm-hmm. have to, and that that becomes a really key part. That, yeah that I think is one of the strong values of yeah. fostering, which is something about. Yeah, well, it's, it's a make or break thing, right? It will make your relationships so much better or it'll break you. Exactly. Right. And I think a lot of foster and adoptive families face that. They're able to say, no, when it gets hard, we're going to come closer rather than push apart. And, and like you said, I love that point about evaluating your, um, your, your values for your family and what you really want to be spending time and energy on. And um, it just, it just changes the perspective in such a valuable way. That's a good description. Yeah. And another key point during that interval, during the first um, time we had them, their mother actually lived with us for a while. And so we were actually mentoring her Mm -hmm. in her parenting. Um, I mean, she was, um, you know, we learned a lot from the therapist's interactions because they would share with us, you know, because she agreed. Mm -hmm. But things like she was stuck at 15 because yeah. of drug use. So we were really dealing with developmentally, emotionally, right. a 15-year-old that had five kids. Mm-hmm. And she was very willing to want to change. She wanted her kids and was open to things. In fact, one day she told me, you know, Auntie, I watch everything you do. I even watch how you put two hands on the wheel of the car. Oh, things wow. you don't even realize right. the impact that you make. Right. You know. That's amazing. And and it flows back the other way, too, because it was amazing to watch her resilience and her drive and her push through to say, I really want my family back together. Yeah. You know, and uh, that, when I look back on it, you know, I realize how much that actually pushed me to do things that 
with excellence. With excellence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it pushed me in ways that I would never have pushed myself. Yeah. You know, so I, I mean, it's a two way street. Yeah. You both learn and you, you, you mentor and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Mm-hmm. How long was the second time that you had the kids? Um, at that, in the second go around, we had the two older ones. So they were 16 and maybe 12. And we had the 16 year old for about four months. Okay. And the, um, the younger one, almost a year. In fact, he said, I don't want to go back until at least a year. And we ended up, then he came back and we, he lived with us all through high school. Yeah. By his choice. Okay. Wow. Well, that's neat to have to be open, right, when he's wanting wanting mm-hmm. that from you guys. That's really cool. Um, I mean, did the county come to you after that and say, will you be foster parents now, too? How did you um, how did you decide to keep going after your family was taken care of? Well, I, I think one of the factors that was such a – played a big role inside there was the fact that as we were learning and growing to be – Foster parents, simultaneously, the county was learning and growing mm-hmm. how to provide that Right, because service. you mentioned that they, they just barely became a... They had just recently become a county. Yeah. Um, in fact, we were the very first case um, uh, doing a, a transfer from one state to Colorado. Okay. So we really had a chance to develop relationships with the folks inside of that um, uh, uh, department. Yeah. They're learning, we're learning, we're exchanging information, and it paid off. And as we went through that process, I think it just, um, it, it just, it, it just opened up a relationship. And so the conversation just naturally evolved mm-hmm. into, hey, if you want to do this, might you consider doing something more? Or they call and say, okay, here's a kiddo. Here's a scenario. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to take this mm-hmm. kiddo? Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of a case-by-case basis, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to um, focus on one at a time? or Was it one family at a time? It's one family at a time. Mm-hmm. Just because we do, we have found our niche Okay, is reunification. Yeah. And we really like to work with the family. And so we just felt like, there's only so many hours in a day. Yes. And to be able to really do that justice, um, one family at a time was kind of all we could handle. Mm-hmm. And so that way we would have lots of interactions. Yeah. And it would, it would allow us to be able to work deeply with the kiddo. Yes. And then turn around and not only, um, you know, talk to that birth parent, but, uh, actually go in depth about, hey, when we're working with the kiddo, this is what we saw happen. All right, if you're seeing that same thing, we tried this. How did that work for you? Yeah. You know, and so it's that give and take. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can only have, like you said, there's only so many hours in a day, but there's also only so much emotional energy in your soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so you have to be open to your limit. And I found that to be pretty similar to probably what you guys are doing. And what would you say to the person who's listening who might not be familiar with foster care, but they're, um, they have an idea in their head that, you know, you focus on the kid and that the parent is not really, um, maybe dangerous or, or isn't really, 
you know, the person you're trying to serve in foster care. And I think some foster parents would say, yeah, just focus on the kids so you can put it all into that. What would you say to that common perception? I want to take a quick break to say thank you to our new donors this month, Amy, Sarah, and Dana. You are the people who keep Foster Together running. That's how we produce this podcast. That's how we match foster families all over the state with their family helpers to bring over dinner once a month and just make it simpler for them to keep fostering. And that's also how we build coalitions around the state with other nonprofits and programs doing work to help Colorado kids. None of us want to replicate each other's work. We just want to amplify what's happening and really do it well and efficiently by working together. So thank you to our donor team for making that happen. Now, if you're listening and you're thinking that you or your business would like to be part of this with us, you can join our monthly donor team too. The average commitment is about $40 a month, but you can choose whatever amount you'd like. For more information, come see me at fostertogether.co slash donate. Okay, back to the interview. And I think some foster parents would say, yeah, just focus on the kids so you can put it all into that. What would you say to that common perception? I would say that a child is not a standalone in a family. Mm -hmm. It's like a mobile. Mm -hmm. They're one component. And um, you can't just work with a child and help them without helping everybody else Mm -hmm. in their family system. Because even if the child changes, the family has to change too. And so um, we have found that you just really have to look at the whole thing Mm -hmm. and look at it as a unit. And you happen to have the child residing in your house. And clearly you do look to the county and the social workers for are they dangerous. You know, you certainly take their lead and their advice um, and you take precautions. But we have always just been very successful and um, had some very good interactions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think some I think some of that also works out um, because we've had opportunities to sort of talk through what are our boundaries, what are our limits, where where what can we handle and what can we not handle, and then be very clear on that. Mm-hmm. Like we know. Different kiddos will come in with different issues. Yeah. One of my own personal pet peeves is dealing with someone who's a habitual liar. Uh-huh. Okay? And that's not unusual. Yeah. It, it can show up inside of all kinds of scenarios. But I know that that will trigger me in certain scenarios. So we're, we're able to sort of talk through more like if this is going to be that kiddo, that might not be a good placement for yeah. us. Um, the other thing I, I think is worthwhile pointing out is that the disruption inside the family is not always due to the parents. Mm-hmm. We've also had placements where the reason for the placement is because of something that the kiddo did. And, and it may not be as safe to have them inside of that home environment. Mm-hmm. And so we get to play that role as well. Or they might be putting other kids in the home at risk and exactly. then they need to be removed. Well, and, and at the end of the day, that's part of the goals we want to try to instill inside of um, the kiddos as well as the families that we each, as individuals, have a level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is definitely true that sometimes we're dealt a uh, very difficult hand, 
So um, hard childhood, hard abuse, childhood, all yes. of those things, yeah. And and that does trigger a lot of trauma, and we want to account for those. Yeah. Because that trauma-informed care is very important inside yeah. of there. But even within the context of that, part of our goal as foster parents is trying to help them understand how can I function with this baggage. Right. We all as humans, we carry baggage. How do we function inside of that environment? And that's where you... You get all the support of all those professionals yeah. to try to figure that out. Yeah, that's a great point. So tell us a little bit more about finding your niche and your um, your group. Tell us, what are a few of the, for somebody who's totally uneducated on foster care, what are a few of the sort of niches that would exist for foster parents to fill? Um, some that I would see, well, one that we have fell into, and I think because we started out with kinship, mm-hmm. was... Um, we really like the reunification. And reunification, for anybody who doesn't know, just means kids going from foster care back to their mom or dad, or sometimes a relative, but usually mom or dad. Right. And usually that's always plan A, mm-hmm. but it might not be very probable. Mm-hmm. And so we like to work with the families where that looks pretty probable. Mm-hmm. Um, many people get into it because they want to adopt, mm-hmm. and they see that as a pathway. So foster to adopt. Mm-hmm. Many like to do just the short-term emergency. Okay. Take them, you know. That's always under 30 days, is that right? I think it varies. Okay. Yeah. The definition has varied over sure. the years. Um, and I know they try to do it less and less just because anytime a kid is moved or disrupted, mm-hmm. it, the impact is huge. So they try to find a place at the get-go. Yeah. And try not that to do that scenario. Long. Yeah. Right. Um, some people... Um, like the teens, we've done a few teen moms, mm-hmm. the teen mom and her so baby. So they have a baby, okay. And so you take them both. Mm-hmm. So you're really teaching this teenager how to be a mom mm-hmm. and help them traverse the being a teen, yeah. but yet being a mom and all the things that come with that. Well, yeah, that goes right back to what David's just saying. You yeah. Know, you have, you're still a kid, but you've got this massive, important responsibility now of your own kid. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's the medical arena. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to take children with medically fragile mm-hmm. needs, and so typically you would take very few because it is very time intensive. Yes. Um, some people like just the babies, mm-hmm. you know, maybe have um, short term the babies that have, you know, been drug exposed, mm-hmm. kind of get them through that cycle. Yes. And then potentially if they go to termination or the parents' rights are terminated, Mm -hmm. so the child would then be free for adoption, Mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily adopt, but many do. Yeah. We started out initially saying we would only take uh, a certain age of kid, Mm -hmm. uh, that we then refined to say we would would only take kids that are younger than our bio kid Mm -hmm. that was in the home. Mm -hmm. And as he grew up, we took older kids. Yes. And so you learn about those what different in your family. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think sometimes I was just talking to another foster mom um, and dad who had a really horrible first case where they felt like the child's best interest was not met at the end of the day. And it wasn't just that they wanted to adopt, but that they really felt like the kids were unsafe where they went. And um, they, I, what I wanted to ask them was, why didn't you stop after that first one? Because I do know several foster parents who've had one really horrible, horrible case, and they've said, this is why no one wants to be a foster parent. I'm out. But 
but it sounds like what you're saying, and this is definitely what I've found too, is, you know, keep pushing, keep looking and seeing what might be a great fit for you and learning how to advocate so that you can, I talked to Lynn about this the first time we talked, it's almost scary how much power a foster parent can have in certain areas over sending kids home or pushing for adoption or whatever it is. And so learning how you can advocate for and, and really without as much without bias as you can advocating for what you see as that best interest mm-hmm. um, so that you're not just constantly feeling like the system is doing a number on you. Right. Well, I do think that's a, I think it's a, a, a wonderful description of it um, because it is a system. It's easy to lose track of what's in the best interest of the kid. Um, but likewise, because we have such a care for the kid, it's easy for us to lose track mm-hmm. of um, that best interest for the kid it may not be perfection. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we talk about what we want to see for a, a perfect model to get back to. But the reality is we have a lot of dysfunctional families that are not in the system and they still work fine. Yeah. So sometimes the birth parents may not be those um, uh paragons of, of virtue. Right. Or they might not parent just like me, which is what I'm always looking for and always trying to deprogram. It's, it's exactly yeah. that, that's exactly <laughs> it, you know? And and um, as long as the kiddo is safe, as long as their basic needs are being met, that is a, a good model to get back to them because we have yet to encounter a kiddo who doesn't want to get back to their birth parents, yeah. regardless Same. of the circumstances. Same. Have you had any cases where, without going into details, have you had any cases where you felt like, well, I wanted to push for, for reunification, wanted to coach these parents, but I just, maybe either they're not willing or it's just too far gone. I think that's in people's mind as like most are just too far gone. Would you say that's true? Um, a majority of the cases that I think we ran into, we were able to sort of connect with the parents. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it will start out where they feel like we are trying to take their kids. And so we have to sort of negotiate through their recognizing like, hey, we have our own kid. We're not trying to add to our family. Um, We're just a placeholder for now. Once they get that, then they're usually willing to sort of work with us. But we have had at least one case where the, the parents focus and what they wanted to see happen was just so uh, I won't say opposed but uh, at, at odds with where we saw the case should sort of go that we eventually threw up our hands and said you know what we will focus on the kiddo we don't want to have continued interactions with these uh, birth parents Yeah, and that, that's another important thing for people to recognize is that you do have that control to and say, I'm not going to mm-hmm. interact. And anymore. the child was older. He was early. And older. it was interesting to see how the kid was learning from us mm-hmm. and he was changing his interactions. So I think that was even more effective. Right. Coming from him versus coming from us. Yeah. And so, I mean, in that, the end, it, I think it was better. Yes. But it was still yeah. a different model for us. And when he's that age, he's going to have to be the one that is learning how to interact with them or not, or exactly. when to set boundaries and when to allow them in. And right. so then you're modeling that. And one other thing that we were kind of 
I just wanted to point out was that there is a huge team of support yeah. that you, you know, will be interacting with. Mm-hmm. And they're all overworked, but everybody kind of has their own um, hot buttons. And mm-hmm. if you have a particular issue and for a child, it might be the CASA, it might be the GAL, their guardian ad litem attorney, um, or particular caseworker that has a certain passion for this kiddo in this scenario. So really take advantage of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have found that many times too. There, There is a big team rooting for this kiddo. And so really taking advantage of that. And in order to take advantage of it, is recognizing what is your role inside of there. Um, I think it's very easy to uh, uh, fall into a trap of, I'm not a professional. You know, these guys are all professionals. They, they went to school. To they went for all of these types of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it turned the corner for us when we recognized, like, wait a minute. We are professionals. We are professional parents. <laughs> you know, we have this kiddo. We see them 24-7. Yeah. We recognize all the things that are going on here. And once we're able to uh, uh, begin to show, it's like, no, we do have this best interest. We will speak to the therapist with respect. We'll speak to the caseworkers with respect, but we're still going to raise these issues. They begin to acknowledge that as well. I found that too. I I do hear stories from other foster parents who say they feel like they get walked all over and, or, you know, someone breaches confidentiality with a bio parent or something like that. And, um, but by these professionals, but I have found that, um, and I honestly, I credit this partly to being a CASA before I was a foster parent. Oh, that would make a difference. And I know people have mixed opinions on CASAs because, as you know, it's one person can do a great job and one person can do a not great job. But the training they gave us, which is actually more training than foster parents get, mm-hmm. um, by what, about 13 hours, I think, um, we were taught all of that advocacy and get in the courtroom and speak up and don't, don't be quiet about this issue until it's resolved to the child's need. And so I kind of went into foster momming with my CASA hat on and just said, here's what he needs. Here's this, you know, every week thousand word report or something like that, where like, I'm just going to make sure that these things don't get swept under the rug. And I think that's the beauty of being a foster parent is that you're focusing on so many less kids than everybody else in the system is. Mm -hmm. And so and that's what we do for our own kids exactly. if they were in right. need. And so it's it's like you were saying, it's a system, but it only works as well as the people in it work. Exactly. And I think a great foster parent can be such a, um, a healing section of that system. Well, we always consider ourselves um, uh, one of the hubs mm-hmm. of this huge spoked wheel, yeah. right? And we get to see... The interactions after therapy, the interactions with the birth parents, the interactions with the GAL. And we would serve as that communication hub of saying, this is all the stuff that's going on here. Um, And as we share that kind of information, it made a difference. Thanks for listening to The Real Foster Parents of Colorado. Before you go, don't forget to check out the conversation with real-life foster parents on our social media accounts. Instagram at Foster Together, Facebook at Foster Together Colorado, and Twitter at Hope Forty. That's my name. 
We are talking this week about kids going home. What makes us rest easier when a kid we love goes home to mom and dad or another family member after being in our foster homes? Although we never have the final say as foster parents, many of us do figure out how to advocate and empower families to get back together. What do you look for in a great reunification? And if you're not a foster parent, you're welcome to ask questions and give your own impressions of reunification. In the next episode, I'll ask David and Lynn a little bit more about the rules they set up in their home to make it a safe, welcoming place for the kids they've cared for. It's some of the best parenting wisdom I've ever heard, so make sure you don't miss it. Hit subscribe on iTunes, or to get email updates, send me an email at connect at fostertogether.co and just say, I want the podcast. I'll see you then.